Okay, guys, uh, James chapter 2, verse 21 to 25. James chapter 2, verse 21 to 25. James chapter 2, 21 to 25. A couple of quick announcements. One, this Tuesday, Encounter will be the hub that meets on Tuesday. Sorry. Oh, sorry. My bad. <laughs> yeah. This Tuesday is Encounter at 3702. Uh, in Vancouver, so uh, you'll be sent an invite, and please turn up for uh, Encounter on Tuesday. Uh, that was one announcement. Two, ah, the rest, it's okay. James chapter 2, verse 21 to 25. Let's start at verse 20. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without works is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. One more time. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless or faith without works is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So guys, um, we're going to talk about obedience matters. If that's the title for today, obedience matters. And so uh, the first statement we want to start with is faith apart from works. Faith apart from works is useless. Is useless. Faith apart from works is useless. Faith apart from works is useless. Works have to be active alongside faith. Works have to be active alongside faith. I know you know this. But let's see where obedience plays a part. So the thing is, uh, works are basically obedient action. Works are obedient action. Works are obedient action. That's what works really are. So God tells us something or God asks us to step out to do something or God gives us a dream or God gives us a promise or God just speaks into your heart or God gives you the word from the scriptures and he says, this is what the word says. And so we begin to trust it, we begin to believe it. But... um, Obedient action is what completes faith. Obedient action is what shows that you actually believe. 
So one of the ways we avoid obedient action is by delaying it, or by questioning it multiple times, or by waiting for multiple confirmations, or, for wait, or, or, or waiting for the right time. And the right time is usually decided by all the conditions coming together. That's what happens. And so obedience matters. And faith without obedient action is not faith that is complete. It's incomplete faith. Only works or obedient action can show faith. That's why Paul, uh, uh, sorry, that's why James goes to the extent of starting verse 20 saying, you foolish man, as in really? Duh, are you that dumb? That's what he's saying. Did you really think that by not being obedient in your action, you really have faith? You don't. That's what he's saying. James was a straight shooter, eh? That entire book is so in your face. So the absence of works is the absence of faith or dead faith. The absence of works... The absence of works. And how do we define works? Go back to this. The absence of obedient action is basically dead faith. And I hope this challenges us because many of us think we are walking in faith. Many of us have walked in faith and have new challenges ahead of us. And we, we, we are hesitant, we are delaying. And one of the things about the word obedience, and I've said this many times, is obedience is walking under. Disobedience is walking around. The, the, the sense of the word in Hebrew is when you're obedient, you're walking under the word. When you're disobedient, you're walking around the word. You, you, you're not walking under it. There are ways you can circumvent it or uh, navigate your way around it, but not under it. And therefore, the absence of obedient action is basically dead faith. Or in other words, just trying to say it in many different ways, whichever way fits, use it. Living faith produces obedience to what God has said. And is complete in doing what God has said. Any questions before we go on? Living faith produces obedience to what God has said and is complete in doing what God has said. It is also possible to be obedient and yet not do. Jesus spoke of a parable of two sons and the father asks one of the sons to go and do something, and the son says yes, and he doesn't do it. And then the other son says no, and he does it. But what if the son who said yes and doesn't do it, is his faith complete? No, because living faith produces obedience to what God has said, but is complete only in doing what God has said. That was what fulfills the action. So what are the things you and I are delaying on? What are the things that we are waiting for the right conditions? What are the things we need another three confirmations for? What are the things where action is held back because you are scared? And these are real things. Scare, being afraid is real. 
So we can't just dismiss it. We can't, uh, faith that just um, walks over fear will only live a day because the fear will come up again. Faith that walks over fear, as in, I'm not afraid, I'm just going to trample over fear. That's great in a song. But in reality, I have to deal with the fear. My fear is the result of not trusting the Father enough in a certain area, and that's where the healing happens. It's not in trampling over it that it's gone. And sometimes it may need me to do it again and again, but eventually the fear disappears. So these are valid reasons. I mean, we don't want to diss what's happening in our lives, but we want to diss what's happening in our lives. Any questions? Okay. Look at Genesis 22 1. Because we read about Abraham in James chapter um, 2. Now go to Genesis 22 1. And it says in Genesis 22 1 that sometime later, God tested Abraham. Why did God test Abraham? What is the reason he tested Abraham? God tests Abraham in Genesis 22 1. Why does God test his faith? Why does God test Abraham's faith? What is God looking for? What was God looking for? Guys, when God tested Abraham, what he was looking for was obedience. It's one thing to count the stars. It's another to obey the command to offer his son Isaac. He was, he, was, he was looking for obedience or he was looking for works. He was looking for obedient action or he was looking for works that would prove Abraham's faith. That would prove Abraham's faith. Faith. It would prove whether it was empty talk or real. And so know that whenever God gives you a promise, that there is the great likelihood of Him seeing you believe the promise, seeing you sing about the promise, seeing you affirm the promise, seeing you pray the promise. And after all that, after He's given you signs and wonders and symbols and you have things in your house that remind you of the promise, you write it with lipstick on your mirror if you're... Um, and then after all that, God will come and say, okay, now that we've got this done, let me test your faith. Because now I want to see if what you believe is what you will do in action. And so God tested Abraham. He had called Abraham out, shown him the sand on the seashore, had shown him the stars in the sky. And he says to him, this is what is going to happen through you, not through Eliezer, but through you. I will give you a son who will be called the son of promise. And through you, nations will be blessed. But now comes the test. Now he wants to see if he really believes. And what a test. He's already delayed 25 years. The guy is 99. You would think that was enough to prove that Abraham was faithful. But what has been tested is not whether Abraham can have a son or not. What is being tested is, I said to you that you will have a son of promise. And through Isaac, I will begin to establish the nation that will produce the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head. Now let me see if you believe it. How does he test him? By saying, offer your son Isaac. There's a reason Abraham is called 
the father of faith. There's a reason Abraham is called the friend of God. This man had the ability to put into action, obedient action. This is what we are aspiring for. And Abraham did not have the Holy Spirit living in him. How does a man do that, man? How do you take a child this age, grow this child to 16 or 17, and then lay this child on an altar because you know that God will be faithful? This is your own flesh and blood. This is no longer Ishmael. This is not Lot. Obedient action. This is the demand that is being placed on us, guys. And rightfully so. And then because he shows his faith in obedient action, he is called a friend of God. He's called the friend of God. What a, what a title, eh? It's perhaps the one title we should fight each other for. Friend of God. Any questions? Stagnant works is evidence of stagnant faith. Stagnant works is evidence of stagnant faith. And by stagnant, it means it's stopped moving. It's still waters have been still for a while. Waymaker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, that is who you are. And he'll say, great, I'm so glad you say that of me, but show me your works. Any questions? Stagnant works is when works, obedient action is stagnant. It ain't moving. It's stopped. It's not moving anymore. Or, there was a great event in my life in the past, which I keep rehashing. And there's there no new evidence of faith works. Because what should happen is life in God, life in God must lead us, must lead you, must lead me into impossible circumstances into impossible circumstances. Because it's only in impossible circumstances that faith, uncompromising dependence, and obedience will be demanded. Life in God must lead you into impossible situations. Why? Because there's a God who wants to go around the earth changing the impossible into possible. He does impossible things. Hebrews 11 is a chapter of impossibility. This whole Bible is impossible. Life in God must lead me into impossible circumstances. And by impossible circumstances, God is not meaning a job or some money, or, or a house, or a, a healing only. Those things are important to him because what matters to you matters to him. It's important to him, but that's not what he means when he says impossible circumstances. And the reason impossible circumstances are important is because it's impossible circumstances that then place a demand on my faith, 
place a demand on uncompromising dependence and places a demand on obedience. And in obedience, in obedient action, my faith will be complete. I was writing this and thinking of something that I've been delaying for the last, at least for the last 10 to 12 days. I'm thinking to myself, how are you going to navigate through this and not do what you, God has told you to do? I had half a mind to do it while worship was happening. Then I thought, no, let's just wait till this afternoon and then I'll go home and complete what God has said. I believe it, I trust him, I've written it down, I carry it on my phone, I go over it, I went over it this morning, but I'm not doing it because I need another confirmation. I'm scared of doing it. It's delay helps. Um, yeah. Let's go with the Hebrews 11 way uh, for impossible circumstances. So, um, if God tells you, May, to leave Richmond and move to Mongolia, and He's said it very clearly and you know it in your heart, what are you going to do? You now have to go and live in a nation that you don't want to go to, you don't want to leave your friends. And he's asking you to. And then kicks in faith, uncompromising dependence and obedience. Let's say that's a going thing. Let's change that. Let's say God wants you to um, break into a certain uh, institution or organization or a job front that you are not qualified for. That you cannot get into without connections. But he's saying, this is what I've appointed you to. I want you to end up in City Hall and I want you to stand for elections. What are you going to do? Let's say it is to go to a place in Prince George and there's a family there that does not have food and God expects you to go there and give them a fish and expects the fish to multiply every month. These are impossible biblical situations. As I'm saying these, these sound so unreal because they are not part and parcel of our lives. This is not a demand we place on ourselves. We'll touch on Elijah now. Let's say there's a dead boy in an upstairs room and you get a dream saying you're supposed to go to that dead boy and you're supposed to directly lay down on that boy mouth to mouth, hand to hand, face to face three times and revive him back to life. Impossible circumstances. We would not even go here because they're supposed to stay in the Bible. And yet, as the water proceeds from the throne and goes further, it's supposed to increase in its depth, not decrease in its depth. If Acts chapter 2 was knee-deep, we must be waist-deep now. These are the impossible biblical circumstances. We focus on job and little things for our own lives. And please don't think God despises that. He loves it. He thrills to take care of his kids, just like any father does. But there's something so far beyond your own personal uh, needs being met. I'm not even talking about healing or anything. I'm just talking about other impossible circumstances. The same God who was present here during worship and who you thoroughly enjoyed is the same God who does this. It is absolutely possible. 
That song, Is He Worthy? Is creation groaning? Is the darkness growing? Well then, the conditions are just right for Yahweh. Yep. Yeah. So how, how, you, how you find that out is, have you done everything that you have been told to? That's the easiest way. Have I finished everything he has told me to? And after I have finished it, have I gone back and said, Master, is there anything else? That's what servants do. They're given a task, they finish it to the T, and then they go and ask the master, Master, is there anything else that we can do? And if he says no, then they go and wait till the next morning for the next set of commands. So it's not enough to finish what we're doing. It's to finish what we're doing and say, I have finished my task. Is there anything else that you want me to do? That's how you keep stepping into the next of God. What happens when we engage in obedient action or works? Obedient action or works when we engage in it, it activates the omnipotence of God. Omnipotence, omnipotence of God into your impotence and into your impossible circumstances. It does both. Obedient action activates the omnipotence of God into your impotency and into your impossible circumstances. That's what activates it. The son of promise is activated when he's offered on the altar. And it's a it's a playing out on Mount Moriah of what will happen to this son of promise called Christ who will be laid on an altar and is as good as dead because the dagger is raised above and then he comes back to life. And Abraham didn't lay his son there thinking I'm going to sacrifice my son. Abraham laid his son there thinking even if I kill him, I will get him back. But it still is an act of faith because the father has to believe that after slaughtering his son, his son will come back to life. This obedience is not outcome-based. There's outcome-oriented obedience, which is I will obey you and I will show faith because I need this outcome and when this outcome happens, I will trust you and believe you and praise you. And then there is obedience that has nothing to do with outcome. It is coming under the word and saying, I will obey because it is my pleasure to obey. Outcome-oriented obedience is highly immature. And if that is who I am as a Christian, then I'm a highly immature Christian. I'm like any other religion that appeases its gods to get its outcome. I dislike it. When I go to God and say, but I did this and how come you haven't? Or when people come to me and say, I did this but God didn't show up. 
Really? Why did you do it? You did it because you wanted to obey him. Well, then you obeyed him. Well done. When I go and tell him stuff like that, but I stood up for you, I did this, nothing happened. Thank God he doesn't go. <laughs> Let's go to First Kings 17. First Kings 17. First Kings 17. It says there that there was a brook that um, Elijah was supposed to sit next to and he would drink water from the brook, the brook Cherith. And then ravens would come and they would feed him bread and meat in the morning and the evening. Lunch is overrated. So um, if there's any meal you want to skip, skip lunch. So these uh, ravens would come in the morning and ravens would come in the evening and they would supply him bread and meat and he had enough water to drink from the brook when there was famine in the land. And so he goes to Cherith, but the very place that God tells him to go to and he obeys and goes to, dries up. It's fascinating that his reaction is very different. Eh? When God tells us something, and this is why I want to go down this route of obedience matters. When God tells us something and the something that we are doing begins to dry up, what is your reaction usually? What, what happens inside you? He told me this, I did it, nothing happened. Worse, he told me this, I did it, and it's turning against me now. What's your reaction? This man goes, sits by a brook, and the very place that he went to because God told him to go, now begins to dry up. God-directed supply ceases. God-directed supply ceases. God told him, in 17 verse 4, he says, I will direct ravens. I will direct the supply of water. I will do it. And you go there and it dries up. I don't know if it's happened to you, but it's happened to me, man, where I've done something God wants to do. And what he says, things begin to happen exactly opposite. What do you do then? And so then he's sent to the next place. Where is he sent to? He's sent to Zarephath. It's the wrong place to go. It's Gentile. It's pagan. And to whom? To a woman who's a widow, low status. He's the prophet of Israel. Even the command to go to that place is so wrong that he should begin to question it. But he goes to Zarephath. Jesus later in Luke chapter 4 talks about it and says, weren't there widows in Israel that Elijah could have been sent to? Yet he was sent to someone in Israel a Gentile land called Sidon or Sidon to a woman in Zarephath. Weren't there enough women in Israel who were going through the famine to whom Elijah needed to be sent? This is when obedience matters. It is not yours to question. What gives you the right to? What gives me the right to question? Who do you think you are? When I'm told something, I must step to it. But Jacob, what if you're not sure God is saying it? Then go and check. But this desire to be certain is wrong. 
It requires no trust if certainty is the objective. If certainty is the objective, it requires no trust. How do you overcome the obstacle of certainty? By looking at him who is your father and beginning to embrace his nature and his safety and his love for you. He's not a contractual lawyer who's going to let you down or pick you up depending on how you do. He's one who surrounds you with loving kindness. Loyal, loving kindness. Who knows how to pick up the pieces and put the whole thing back together again. It's the only way to overcome uncertainty. Because certainty will not be given you. Because Jesus is interested in making you like him. And so he goes to Zarephath and he goes to this woman. I remember having uh, uh, the Lord saying, I need you to go to the UK. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going there anyways two weeks from now. So I'll go. And he says, no, I need you to go to the UK now. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, but that's just not reasonable. And so, but instead of saying that's not reasonable, I say, so when? And this is third of, um, I don't remember which month. And uh, the Lord says, uh, I want you to go on the sixth. And I'm thinking that is too close. And so I'm sitting uh, at this uh, samosa shop in Surrey. And uh, a car pulls up outside my outside where I'm sitting. Like I'm, I'm sitting right near the window, and the car and a car pulls up. A Mustang pulls up, and it's got a strange number plate. It says UK zero six. Who has number plates like that? I have a I have a photograph of that UK zero six. Now I'm thinking to myself, what choice do I have? So my next question is, Father, why should I go? And there's absolutely no reply. It's like I told you to go. I don't need to give you an explanation. So I jump on a plane and go to UK, but I don't know what to do. And as I'm landing, the Lord is saying, call your brother-in-law, ask him to come to London, walk the streets of London. He knows I don't like walking. And so now, land in UK, and I'm walking up and down the streets of London at a place called Grosvenor Square, because that's what he told me to do. So I'm walking up and down. And this is, I've never been on a trip like that, but the strange thing is that kind of obedience breaks you for things that you will now experience in the future. I'm walking up and down the streets and I get a call. I get a call from a man who calls me and says, I got your number from someone in Indonesia. Next time you're in London, could you please give me a call? And so I say, I'm in London. He says, where? I say, here. And he's at Selfridges, which is not too far away. And he says, can I meet you? I said, yes. And he says, I've been fasting for three days and asking the Lord for answers. And so I meet him. And he's like a Will Smith from um, Ghana. Um, he's done movies and he's in politics and all this stuff. And he comes and meets me and we sit together and I said, don't tell me anything. And I begin to prophesy on him and everything he's asking God is answered. The next day, I don't know what to do. And so I wake up and I ask God if there's anything to do and the Lord says, nothing. So I go back to sleep. And then uh, when I wake up from sleep, the Lord says, I want you to go to the place where the Welsh revival was. And I Skipped all those classes at Regent. So I had to Wikipedia it, and I found that it's uh, a place called, a church called Moriah. So uh, we drive to Moriah, and the Lord says, just write a letter for a guy who's going to come to this church and leave it at the bust of the guy who started the Welsh revival, and he'll come and pick it up. That's all we did. Third day, nothing to do. Um, except 
before I left on the flight, the Lord said, there's a girl called Kiara. I want you to go write, a, uh, write something down for Kiara. When you meet Kiara, give her the letter. And I'm thinking, about, how do you go around London asking if girls if their names are Kiara? So that isn't working out. The third day, did nothing, just enjoyed myself. The fourth day, it was time to fly home. I had to be here in church for the service. We used to start in the afternoon. So I'm driving to um, Heathrow, and Paul's sister's husband runs a church in Wembley, in Wimbledon. So I thought, okay, let me go stop there because he asked me if I could come and preach. So I went there and um, I'm about to preach and the Lord reminds me of Kiara. And so I go and ask Paul, I said, is there a Kiara here? And guess who the worship leader is? Uh, I go and ask Paul's uh, uh, brother-in-law, is there a Kiara here? And guess who the worship leader is? A girl called Kiara. Not this Kiara, another Kiara. And so I give her the words that God said. And she's like weeping buckets, eh? Because these are things she's been asking for. Jumped on a plane, came back here, attended church. Now here's a question I want to ask at the end of this whole story. Aren't there enough people in the UK to do this? Does it make any sense to fly all the way to UK for three days, not knowing what you're supposed to do, spend the kind of money you're spending, go there and come back? Aren't there 60 million people in the UK? And out of those 60 million, can we assume that there are at least 2 million decent Christians? Why can't God get one of them? It does not make sense, but obedience does not necessarily make sense. It takes you into places because this is how God works. It's his pleasure. I mean, never get to experiences if you don't dare it. Reason and speculative thinking kicks in. And so he goes to Zarephath and he meets this woman. Look what he does, eh? The first thing he does is, he knows his orders from God. You said the brook has dried up. You said the bread has stopped because the ravens won't bring it anymore. So what does he go and do? He starts off by replacing the brook. He says, can I get some water? Because he meets his widow. He meets her there. Just like I met this guy from Ghana who's calling me saying, if you're in London next time, the timing of God is perfect if we obey. The timing of God is perfect if we obey. I don't know how much this small delay has cost me in what I'm supposed to do. The timing of God is perfect. He finds her collecting sticks. And so he asks her to bring him water. Why? Because the cherith has to be replaced. And then once she brings him water, instead of stopping at that, and he knows she's poor, she's a widow, what does he ask next? Bring me bread. Why? Because the ravens have to be replaced. You have to take God at face value and expect that what he said he will do, he will do. And some of it requires not waiting, but the audacity to ask. Because he's going to get more audacious. He asks for bread and the woman supplies bread. But while she's supplying bread, here's what she's saying. I just want you to know that I have very little flour. I'm collecting these sticks so that I can make bread. And then my son and I are going to die because the flour is over. And look at his reaction. His reaction is, yes, but bring me the bread first. That's the kind... We wouldn't dare... Most of us wouldn't dare do that, eh? He asks for him to be fed first. Guys, always remember, God is proven. God is proven when, only when obedience is tested. Only when obedience is tested. God is proven only when obedience is tested. Otherwise, faith can just stay where it is. God is proven when obedience is tested. He asks for 
himself to be fed first, not the woman, not the son. The demand is outrageous. The demand is self-centered. Or at least that's how it sounds. And yet, the demand has nothing to do with Elijah. I was in LA uh, the last two days, and uh, there's this guy, Jordan, that I uh, have met before, and uh, I don't know him well enough, eh? But I'm sitting with him, and he'll be here next week, and I told him, I want one year of your life. Give me one year of your life where I'll ask you for anything and you'll have to do. If I tell you to go somewhere, you'll go. If I tell you to stay somewhere, you'll stay. And I said, you can get back to me tomorrow and you can let me know. This is Friday night. And I said, let me know by Saturday. I met him only one and a half times before for about 20 minutes. And uh, his response was, do I have to wait for tomorrow? Can I say yes now? Look at the demand I'm making. I do not know him. He does not have a relationship. Trust has not been built. But I'm saying, give me one year of your life. It sounds self-centered. It sounds egotistic. It sounds uh, unreasonable. It sounds outrageous. And it sounds all that and appears all that. But I'm telling you, it is only for his benefit. Sometimes... That kind of audacity is required to get someone to where they need to be. But the question is, when you do that, what do you expect the reaction to be? Will it be good or will it be bad? Will it be trust? Can the person trust you or can the person not? Someone asked me this question. Um, George and Anne were asking me the question two weeks ago. Do we listen to people when we do not know them? If they give us a word that is directional, a prophetic word that is uh, directional, what do we do? Do we listen or don't we listen? And it's a tough call, eh? There was one girl uh, that I met, and I'm, the Lord is saying, tell her to go and spend some time in Mozambique with Heidi Baker Ministries. There was another couple that want to do a tourism um, uh, business to Israel, and the Lord is saying, go to South America, because you'll work among the Incas and the Mayans and the civilizations that came out from them, and you'll do really well. What do you do now? When you give a word like that and they do not know you, what should be their reaction? And I would say that if you don't have a relationship, it is okay not to jump and do it. God will understand. Because trust has to be developed. But then you meet some guys like Jordan who do not know you but will jump to it. He's asking this woman to give the bread to him first and not to the son and daughter. But he gives him a promise. And he says, you do this and you will eat for the rest of this famine. So let me not beat around the bush. Sometimes when I ask you for stuff, since you have a relationship with me, even if it is outrageous, even if it sounds completely self-centered and Jacob looks like an egotist who wants to control you, I stand here and I tell you without a shadow of a doubt, that the only interest I have is you. And I'd suggest that you give it a shot. Because the time will come and you will have to ask that of others. And if you haven't done it here, you will not be able to ask it of others. 
Trust me, I know how it is to be demanded of things that are outrageous, and I have done it. You can ask Eddie, you can ask Chad, you can ask others. They demanded of me, and I would do it without thinking because I knew these men and women had, my, had, my, had everything that God wanted for me at their heart. Because if I have to jump off a steeple now to prove that for you, then I ain't jumping off a steeple for you, nor should you be jumping off steeples for people in the future. I'm sorry, this is part of the teaching. I cannot avoid it. To avoid it is to skirt away from what might sound egotistical and controlling, but I'll do, be doing you a disfavor. Oh, this is going to be a slightly hard message. Huh? Um, she obeys. She has no relationship. The demand is outrageous. It is self-centered or sounds self-centered. can be perceived that way, but she obeys though she has no relationship. She doesn't have any reason to follow him. She doesn't even believe in his God. And she obeys. She did what was asked. And as soon as she does what is asked in 1715, you see that the word of the Lord came to pass. And guess what? Elijah stayed with them. He didn't do this miracle and get up and leave. The guy stayed with them and ate and drank with them for the next many, 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 many months. It wasn't a one-off thing. The guy actually ate and drank with them because the flour would not run out. True, they ate bread. But they ate. Actions like this, guys, sets the stage for others. Eh? Actions like this set the stage for others. If you don't go down this route, others will not follow. Guess who follows him? Elisha. Guess who follows him later? Peter. Guess who follows him later? I'll, I'll give you examples. So now something else happens. This gets even more complicated. The son has lived. The son was going to die. Now the son lives. But shortly after he lives, uh, the son dies. The son dies. And the woman is really upset. There's this turmoil of emotions. Did you come here to expose my sin? Why have you come here to bring a misfortune on me? Shift to 2 Kings 4. And it's the same thing happening again. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha is now in uh, place. And there's a woman who uh, has a son uh, she didn't have, and because uh, Elisha is favored by the woman, she, he says, what do you want? And she says, I don't have a son. Gehazi tells Elisha she doesn't have a son, and so a son is born. And one day, the son has a headache, and the son dies. In both cases, the women are reacting. The mothers are reacting. Both mothers are saying the same thing. You said that you would give us a son. Did I come asking for a son? But now that you've given a son, why did you take him away? Why are you doing this to me? With Elijah, the woman says, why have you come to spot out my sin? Couldn't you have left me alone? This is when a word is given. These are the ultimate prophets in the Old Testament. A word is given and the word does not happen the way it is supposed to happen. Now everything goes into turmoil. Eh? Elijah and Elisha, because they are Old Testament people, themselves begin to blame God saying, why have you done this to the ones that you sent me to? Because they thought everything good and everything evil comes from Yahweh. So they're blaming God too. 
What is it that happens to you when a promise that is given to you suddenly turns sour and dies? What do you do then? This reaction? Where is God? How could you? You're no prophet. Wrong understanding, guilt, sin, sin, blame, shame, betrayal. Both the woman and Elijah react. You see the same thing happening with Elisha. How do you handle it, man? Some of you have been waiting for a while for something. And you just think it was going to happen and it took a nosedive. What do you do then? God said on such and such a day, I will bless you. And that is the very day that you find the worst things happening in your life. What do you do then? He promised you that you would do this, this, and this. And your whole life is in tatters because of things that have happened in between. What do you do? We've got to rise up above this. Eh? And we'll talk about how to rise up above this. So that is not how we react. We definitely don't react like these women. Both mothers have promised their sons' lives and both die. And now both are bitter. So many of us turn on God or turn on the messenger, or turn on the promise, because what has promised is delayed. So many of us turn on God, turn on the messenger. Oh, I have experienced this. Where you give a word, and it doesn't uh, happen in time, or it doesn't happen the way you want it, and you turn on the messenger. This story is a narrative of how things should actually be worked out. Turn on God, turn on the messenger, or you turn on the promise. And any time you turn on any of these things, it's like a turtle that withdraws its neck and everything becomes stagnant again. You know, nowadays I get excited when the brook dries up and the ravens stop coming. In my mind it is, oh shucks, the, the source that God is using has dried up. What is he up to next? So that's the first thing you need to know. That when it comes to things drying up, the first thing is anticipation. So, what's happening, Abba? Can I look... Up your sleeve. Can I look up your sleeve? That doesn't sound very biblical. Can I scan the horizon? Habakkuk, he says in chapter 2, I have a complaint and I'm going to climb up the watchtower. I'm going to stand there and talk to God and look for what he will say to my complaint. That's what he says. I'm going to stand here and wait to see what he'll say to my complaint. And then God says, this word is for an appointed time. It will not tarry. Scan the horizon when the very things he's promised are beginning to turn. Instead of turning on God, turning on the messenger, turning on the promise, scan the horizon. There must be an anticipation. And then Elijah and Elisha pray. Elijah and Elisha pray. Both of them stretched out three times on the boy. Now, Elisha seems to have only done it twice. But guess what Elisha does? He sends his staff, which is a symbol of his authority and his power. And it sends it ahead of him with Gehazi. And Gehazi goes, puts it on the boy's face. Nothing happens. 
And then Elisha comes and lays himself on the boy twice. Eurekas! And then, uh, someone was sleeping, I just woke them up. And so, <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> sorry, I just enjoy that. Um, Elijah and Elisha pray. Elijah stretches out on the boy three times. What an odd thing to do. What an odd thing to do, guys. I mean, it would be so, so repulsive today to think of what is being done. There's a boy lying dead. And here is a grown-up man lying down on top of him, hand-to-hand, mouth-to-mouth, face-to-face. Not once, not twice, three times. Sometimes the things that are asked of you are so absurd that it is best to tell people to leave the room because otherwise word will spread that you're loco. And in both cases, Elijah goes into the upper room and he does this quietly. Elisha must have heard about it from Elijah or Elisha must have been there because Elisha tries the same thing. Peter takes a page out of both Elijah and Elisha and Jesus when he sends everybody out in Acts chapter 9 because he's got to take care of Dorcas who is again placed, washed in an upper room, dead. Paul does something very similar when he finds that Eutychus has fallen off the balcony and he's lying dead and the Bible says in NIV that Paul went and threw himself on the boy. He threw himself on the boy. Other versions, to make it more palatable, say he embraced the boy. No, he threw himself on the boy. Some of the things asked of us in obedience are are really meant to make it so absurd that the only one who can pull it off is God. I read one commentary. I'm thinking to myself, really? I want to delete that commentary from my phone. It says... The boy was actually not dead, and Elijah was trying to warm him up so he could have his life back. And I'm thinking to myself, really? And if you were thinking that, there's another thing, guys. If you lie down on a dead person, you render yourself unclean. It's as unclean as you can get as a Jew. Jesus did it with the son of the widow of nine. But these two prophets are rendering themselves unclean. They're doing everything possible to make people around them be quiet, repulsive. What will your obedience, how far will you go with your obedience, eh? There is something to doing it three times. Uh, uh, and uh, in the Bible, there are many instances where most of the things done in the Old Testament in particular were repeated three times. Um, whether it be the angels singing, holy, holy, holy. Um, three and seven were a common repetition in the Bible. Um, you were supposed to sprinkle blood upon things to cleanse it seven times. And so Elijah, Elisha says to Naaman that I want you to dip in the river seven times. 
it is because you would you would sprinkle blood upon this uh, bird that was going to be sacrificed and you would literally dip it seven times and so many of the th threes and sevens are not repeated attempts to make something happen but they were deliberate attempts because it was supposed to be numbers that were connected with God so it wasn't let me try this till it works uh, it was more along the lines of this is what is asked of me yeah there are many threes and sevens, especially in the Old Testament. The strange thing is, um, much later, in 2 Kings 8, this happens in 2 Kings 4, in 2 Kings 8, Gehazi, who is now leprous because he's got Naaman's disease, is sitting in front of a king. And this woman has been away for seven years because Elisha says to this woman, I need you to go out of this land and uh, live... Uh, somewhere else and come back to Israel and she comes back after seven years but when she comes back her land has been taken the land that she used to live in has been taken and Gehazi covered with leprosy is sitting in front of the king and he's telling the king about this story of this woman who was fed, mirac fed miraculously by Elisha and whose son was raised and while they're saying it guess what happens this woman walks into the king's presence saying I have come here to demand my land and Gehazi is saying but this is the woman I'm talking about and there's no question of checking whether she's true or not the king says immediately take your land back the timing of God when it comes to obedience is so amazing that that alone is worth pursuing obedience and timing go so hand in hand that's why delay doesn't mean that you don't get what you want, but you, the, the, the timing is critical. And sometimes it's worth waiting for knowing the right time than jumping ahead. Here's another question I had for you. When Elisha sent the staff and it was laid on the boy's face, why didn't the boy revive Moses used his staff, things would begin to happen. Why is it that the greatest, one of the greatest, uh, the, the guy who got the double of what Elijah had, sent his staff ahead and he says to Gehazi, go lay the staff on the boy's face and the boy will revive. And he goes, lays the staff and nothing happens. We, don't, we may not have an explanation for it, but what do you do when God asks you to do something and nothing happens? What do you do when God asks you to do something and nothing happens? Guys, this is super important, eh? Sometimes obedience is a progression of steps. It is not a one-off. Because we get stuck with this. But I obeyed, nothing happened. Well then, if you obeyed and nothing happened, go back and say, Father, I obeyed, what's next? Imagine Paul in Acts chapter 16. God says go. He goes. He gets, comes to Phrygia and the doors are shut. And the, 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 he's not allowed to go forth. What does he do now? He goes back and he checks again. He goes to Mycenae. It's shut there again. Obedience is a progression of steps. It's not a one-off. We are the ones who made obedience a one-off. And we get so resentful when the thing that God asks us to do, we do and nothing happens. If nothing happens, start again. Go and ask God, Father, I did this. Uh, you told me to do this. I did this. Your obedience is now not outcome-oriented. Outcome-oriented obedience sucks. It is manipulative. It is, 
It, it, it is based on something that you want to do for yourself, not something that you want to do for God. The pleasure of obedience lies in pleasing the one that you so love. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. It's not a one-off. It's unquestioning response. It's unquestioning response. It's unquestioning easy response to the assured love of the Father. It is not outcome-based and it's not reward-based. But it is trust-based. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I'll keep it really short because I've said it before. Um, I came. <laughs> when was how how long ago was 1989? 19 uh, no 1993 was how long ago? 29 years. 29 years ago, almost to the day. It was around this time. I'd come here for a holiday. I'm supposed to go back to Bahrain because I was working in Bahrain. And to the day, 29 years ago, I was just thinking of it while I was driving. The Lord gives me dreams three nights in a row saying, you're not to go back right now. I got a job there. I got parents there. I didn't even take my vacation pay. I had enough money just for four weeks that I was here. And he gives me three dreams saying, do not go back. I don't go back. And uh, I call my boss and tell him uh, I can't come because the Lord's saying no. He, eventually, he canceled my visa, but now I got a problem. I can only go back to India because I can't go back to Bahrain. And that's when my papers that I had put in for immigration to Bahrain, to Canada, came through. But now I'm supposed to go to the U.S. Embassy to get my interview sorted out. And the Lord said, I'll bring you to this land, so go. I go once, nothing happens. I go twice, nothing happens. I go th third time, nothing happens. I go a fourth time, nothing happens. Long story short, every time I went, they would not let me go across to Seattle to get a six-minute interview done so I could come back. Every time I would go back to God and say, what do you want me to do? Go back. I'd go back. Second time, go back. Go back. Third time, go back. Go back. Fourth time, I didn't want to go back. And the fourth time, I'm sitting there not wanting to go back and instead I go to the border thinking those guys will allow me because I have an interview. They said, nope. Even if Bill Clinton says yes, we won't allow you. So I come back. Now I'm done. A lawyer advises me to go back to India or sneak in through Mexico. Um, <laughs> honest truth. Um, but here's the thing. I had absolute word from God saying, I will bring you here. If you don't have that absolute word, then you're second guessing. But when you have an absolute word, then uh, the fifth time I didn't want to go back. I'm sitting in my uh, sitting and then the Lord says, go back in the way in which you came. And so we go back a fifth time. And the lady was quite upset with me by now and said, why are you back? And I said, I didn't plan to come back. Lawyers told me not to come back, but I'm here because this morning I was reading the word and the word said, come back. And so here I am. And then after a whole lot of time was over, she calls me up and she's weeping and she's saying, um, 
I don't have the power to stop you. She's the vice consul of the U.S. Embassy. I do not have the power to stop you. Your God has set me up. There's nothing I can do to prevent you from going into the United States. She's weeping as she stamps what needs to be stamped and given. Five times, you keep going back. Why? Because obedience is not a step. Obedience is a progression of steps. And when obedience is a progression of steps, the world begins to watch because something is afoot and they will see the glory of God. Imagine what would have happened to Moses if after the first time he goes and asks Pharaoh to let his people go, nothing happens. What did Pharaoh do? He made it worse. He said, well then, let me show you how to make bricks without straw. He makes it harder. People begin to rebel against Moses, saying, why did you even do this? And yet, there's an entire world now that knows the story of Exodus. That story is only triumphed by Jesus rising from the dead. There's nothing else that can trump that story. This is why in Psalm 40 it says, Many will see and many will fear and put their trust in the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord. He heard my cry. He lifted me up from the miry clay. He set my feet on the rock to stay. Now many will see and many will fear and put their trust in the Lord. When you have metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, to stand in progressive steps of obedience, the world begins to watch because they see you standing there. And they know that either you will shame your God or your God will come in such blazing glory that they will not be able to stay neutral. They will have to reject him or they will have to accept him. I said this before, what my Muslim neighbor came and said, and it was such agony in his voice when he said, Joan and Ruth have met the guy. Remember the Bashir that used to come for the... He came and said to me, Jacob, tell me something. How does your God speak? Because mine does not. That is the kind of thing we are talking about when it's progressive steps of obedience. This is what we are called to, guys. Then you have the opposite eh? in Saul, King Saul. His was outcome-oriented obedience. He's told not to offer a sacrifice. Pressure grows. He offers a sacrifice. And then you have that sad verse in 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22 or thereabouts. To obey is better than sacrifice. And submission is better than the fat of rams. Last thing I want to say is in obedience, in God's commands, details are often withheld. In God's commands to you, details will often be withheld. In God's commands to you, details will often be withheld. Details will often be withheld. Please get used to it. In God's commands to you, details will often be withheld. All you will get is, trust me. That's all you'll get. Trust me. Concerns of go where, how long for, with whom, what for, what about this or that. These all will go 
unanswered often. If you're in this church, expect this. If you're in this church, expect this. If this is not your cup of tea, start drinking. Another way to rephrase Jehovah Jireh, God will provide is what we normally say, Jehovah Jireh. But another way to look at it is, God will provide an outcome even though I don't see it. Even though I don't see the plan. That's what Jehovah Jireh looks like. Because at the end of the day, guys, obedience is my responsibility. Obedience is my responsibility. The outcome is God's. So when he changes direction, when he changes direction, don't scramble to maintain direction. When he changes direction, don't scramble to maintain direction. When he changes vision, don't scramble to maintain vision. Because you'll miss the story he's writing. Because you'll miss the story he's writing. Just be aware of that. One of the things God wants to do with this church is make it so highly flexible that we'll have to change our name from Acts 29 to Acrobat 29 or something. <laughs> yeah, highly flexible. Look at Job 37, 22. Learn it. Let's read it from both the NIV and the message. Job 27, and uh, not 32. Job 27, 12. I love this verse. I want to live this verse. I want us to live this verse. I don't want to be anything else but this verse for his sake. Job 37, verse 12. Let's read it from the NIV first, starting at verse 11. Job 37, verse 11 onwards, 11 to 13. Let's read it from the NIV first. This is what God's desire is for us as a church, for each of us individually. He would love this. He would love this. He, he, his eyes scan the earth to and fro looking for those that can be uh, loyal on his behalf so that he can be steadfast in his attitude towards us. Look at what it says. Job 37 verse 11. He loads the clouds with moisture. Meaning you're the cloud. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. At his direction, they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish people or to water people, water his earth and show his love. Go to the message. It says it really well in the message too. Job 37, verse 11 to 13. And it's, yes, it's God who fills clouds with rainwater and he hurls lightning from them, from them every which way. Listen to the next verse, eh? He puts them through their paces, first this way, then that. 
and commands them to do what he says all over the world, whether for discipline or grace or extravagant love, he makes sure they make their mark. Beautifully, this is what this church must become. Where it'll be like at the drop of a hat, put them through paces, send them here, send them that. Sometimes it makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's Zarephath, sometimes it's Bethlehem. But no questions asked, you go. Why? So that he can make his mark by using you for discipline or for extravagant love or for whatever he wants to. Highly flexible people. Yeah? So if this head is in the way, cut it off and replace it with a cabbage and you'll do much better. On that note, let us end.